morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I would like you to please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. What we are going to read this morning took place just days before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. What we're going to read today happened on a Monday morning and a Tuesday morning. In fact, almost all of Mark chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, almost all of those six chapters covers the span of only one week. But what a week. Mark chapter 11, verse 12, reads this way. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now just pause there for a moment. I, I want to just reflect on this statement here. Jesus and his disciples had been making their way to Jerusalem for some time. In fact, the day before they had arrived, we call that the triumphal entry. Sometimes we refer to it as Palm Sunday. Jesus, along with the disciples, Jesus was riding on this, this donkey, this colt this, this, that had never been ridden, but he rides it into Jerusalem. But the Bible also says that they didn't stay in Jerusalem. That was on a Sunday, that triumphal entry. But on, on that night, they went to this little village just to the east and a little bit south of Jerusalem called Bethany. Now they're making their way into Jerusalem, and it says here, as they're walking on this Monday morning, it says, Jesus became hungry. Now, I had never really noticed that before. I'd read this many, many times, like many of you. I'd read it before, but I really never noticed that line. It says, Jesus became hungry. Now, all of you are aware of this feeling. It is a, at, when you're hungry, you are slightly uncomfortable. You are slightly uh, hungry, or you're hungry, and, you, and it's a, a slight discomfort. And I got thinking about this. This is Jesus' humanity. He's the Son of God, but he's also dwelling in, in as a man. He has this physical body that is hungry, and he's experiencing this slight discomfort of hunger. It's not the first time. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that it mentions that Jesus was hungry, but of course it mentions it elsewhere, particularly when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days as he was tempted. He fasted that entire time. I'm sure he fasted on other. He knew what hunger was, but what's interesting is here on this Monday morning, he is, he is feeling the discomfort, physical discomfort of hunger but his physical discomfort is going to be, of course, greater just five days later as he's hanging on a cross. I never noticed this before. It says Jesus was hungry. Verse 13 reads this way, And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And Jesus said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Now, 
We're, we're, going to, we're going to read on a little bit more here in a moment, but these are some curious verses, and I want you to imagine the scene in your mind. They're, they're, they, they, Jesus is hungry. They see this fig tree ahead, so they approach this fig tree. Now they're standing at the base of it or maybe just a little bit back from it. They're looking up into the branches of this fig tree, but they are finding no fruit. And then it adds this, and it was not the season for figs. <laughs> Does that seem just a little bit odd to you? I've often wondered about that. Why did Jesus go and expect to find figs, or fruit rather, something to eat, when no fig tree, when no, not just this one, when no fig tree at that time of year had figs. You know, I almost feel sorry for the fig tree here. I mean, it's like it's not that time of year, and, and, and yet you're expecting to find some food. You feel sorry for the poor little old fig tree, or at least I do a little bit. Let me explain this, because this is a bit of a, a curiosity. Fig trees in that region had, and still have today, two kinds of fruit. There is an early, and there is a late fruit. Let me explain. The early fruit the early fruit was a kind of a bud or a nodule that was not marketable, but it was still quite edible. You couldn't really sell it, but the people who lived there or nearby could reach up and pull some of these nodules down and they could chew them. It was, it was a bit nutritious. It was edible. It was, I understand it's tasty. I've never tried it, but it was tasty. Um, uh, it, it, again, it wasn't something that you could market, but then there was this later fruit. The later fruit was, of course, the fig, and that's where the money was. It wasn't yet fig season, but there should have been that earlier and smaller fruit. So they go up expecting to find this smaller fruit, and it's not there. They, they weren't going to see figs, but they also didn't find these other, this other. There was absolutely no fruit on this tree. So in verse 14, now again, picture this in your minds. In verse 14, it says, Jesus cursed the tree, saying, may no one ever eat from you again. May no one ever eat from you again. He's just standing there, and he curses this tree. Now, understand, the disciples are there with Jesus, and they hear his words. They hear Jesus say this, speak this to this tree but I doubt it meant very much to them at the time. I think at the time, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, that's interesting. He just said, may no one ever eat from you again. So, the text goes on. They make their way into Jerusalem, and then later they return to Bethany. The next morning, now there's another event that happens. We'll look at that another time. But the next morning, Jesus and the disciples again walked by that same tree. But in the brief span, just in the brief 24-hour brief span of one day, the tree has now changed. Verses 20 and 21 read this way. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, or means teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Again, that imagination that God gave you. Think of that. They're looking at this tree that just 24 hours before had been full of leaves, no fruit, but full of leaves. Now they come up to it, and the entire tree, all the way down to its roots, was absolutely dead. And what Jesus said was true. 
It was like, it was like the, the shortest prophetic statement ever from one day to the next was true. No one would ever again eat from that particular fig tree, ever. It was dead. Um, now, you have to understand something. Jesus uh, seldom cursed things. <laughs> you can read through the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, you will find that Jesus' miraculous power was usually demonstrated in healing. So somebody's sick, and so he heals them, and they're, they're raised up from sickness or or restoration. He sometimes restored life. That was a big miracle. In fact, not long before this, he'd raised a man from the dead. That's a pretty powerful miracle. He would, his power was demonstrated in provision, right? He takes a small lunch and makes it into a feast for thousands. Or, uh, or, or deliverance. A person is demon-possessed by one or more demons, and Jesus prays, and they're set free. That's usually how you see Jesus's miraculous power demonstrated, destruction was not his pattern. It's not what he usually did. But here, here, Jesus destroyed something. Think of this. He destroyed something. He killed it. He destroyed the tree, not for what it did, but for what it didn't do. Think of this for a moment. He didn't destroy it not because of it did something, poisoned somebody. <laughs> oh, we're going to curse that tree. Or because a branch kept falling on people. <laughs> Be- because it was necessarily in the way. He didn't curse it because of what it did, but because of what it failed to do. A fig tree's purpose is to create food, and this one didn't. You didn't plant fig trees just for shade. There were other trees that were better at that. They didn't plant fig trees for nice place to build a nest for the birds that happened to be in the area. There were other trees that could do that. Fig trees were planted for for their food. That was their purpose, but this one did not fulfill its purpose. So why? Why did Jesus curse it then and there? Why in this place? You know, you think, I got thinking about this. Uh, you know, no other place in Scripture do you see Jesus doing what he did here that day. You see it mentioned in, in other, but, but this is the only time that he, the only occasion that he did this. It's recorded in a couple of Gospels. This is the time where it's, it, this, this did not have... When Jesus came to town, people did not say, cover your fig trees because that guy's a killer. It's not what he did. Why did he choose in that time, in that place, when he's facing so many things? And Jesus, Jesus knew many of the things. Jesus knew all of the things that were going to be awaiting him in the next few days. Why did he do it here? Why did he do it then? Well, again, back in verse 15, we read earlier Back in verse 15, it says the disciples heard Jesus curse the fig tree. It didn't mean maybe much at the time, but they heard him curse the fig tree. And then in verse 20, it says they saw the dead tree. 
In verse 15, they heard him curse it. In verse 20, they saw the dead tree. So they were there at the very beginning of the end, and they were there, of course, at the end. They were witnesses to this. Jesus knew this, and Jesus was showing them, and he's showing us the importance of fulfilling our purpose. Let me say that again. Jesus took those moments, that Monday morning, that Tuesday morning, Jesus took this occasion because he wanted to teach them and us the importance of fulfilling our purpose. Jesus was himself extremely purposeful. There's nothing that Jesus did accidentally or, or uh, incidentally. Jesus was the most purposeful person who ever lived. And so if he killed a tree on this occasion, he had a good reason for it. And he, his, his purpose here was to show them and to show us the importance of fulfilling our purpose. So let me ask you this morning, what is your purpose? Don't shout it out, don't raise your hand, but just ask yourself, what is your purpose in life? What is your purpose in life? What is the reason for your existence? Is it to live as long as you can and enjoy as much as you can along the, the way? Is it to uh, create a, a certain um, uh, place in life or a position in life? Is it to accomplish something that, that you've long wanted to accomplish? What is your purpose for life? Well, this morning, I want, to, I want to tell you really what our purpose is. Because this morning, particularly if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but actually for every person who has ever lived or whoever will live, our purpose is to give glory to God. That is our purpose in life. Now, this is very important, so let me, let me restate that. The most important thing, the reason of your existence, the reason that you have breath right now, the reason that you are still alive, the reason that you are conceived and born was to give glory to God. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is a familiar text, but I want you to understand this. Really, it speaks of purpose. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here is a paraphrase of what I just read. God has a clear purpose for every person, and that is, that is to experience the light that only he can give, and then to proclaim that light, to proclaim that message to the world around us, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who transformed us, who moved us from darkness into light. Our purpose in life uh, regardless of what anyone else ever tells you, regardless of what our, our culture dictates to us, our purpose for every person who's ever, the reason that God created us is he desires to transform us, to be transformed by him, to live for him, and then proclaim him to the world around us. That is the reason that you were created. Now here's the thing. A lot of people 
are going to spend all of their lives thinking that they were created for another purpose or in some cases that they were created for no purpose, that they're just living and they live a set number of years and then they die of something and that's it. There is no purpose. And the person who has no purpose in life leads the most miserable of life and the person who tries to live their life for another purpose will also be miserable but the person who understands that I was created by God to worship him to serve him and to proclaim him I promise you that person's life is going to be one of fulfillment that was a little bit weak but yeah amen That is the reason for our existence. The Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he wrote this. This really encapsulates it. He, He wrote this. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. I mean, that's that's it condensed down, concentrated. This is it. To me to live is Christ. Living is not about me. It's not about another person. It's, it's, not, it's not, though I have children, we have children, we have grandchildren, whatever you have. You have a spouse, perhaps you have a loved one, somebody that you care very deeply for. But, but even though you love them deeply, that is not the reason that you were created. You were created to worship him. And the person who fails to do that, who doesn't understand their purpose... Well, this is where it gets dicey. Because if our purpose is to worship him, then that cursed fig tree also shows us how destruction comes to those who don't fulfill that purpose. I told you this is where it gets dicey. This is where it gets a a, a bit difficult. You see, what I just said there, let me say it again, if our purpose is to worship him, then the cursed fig tree and some of the parables, the stories that Jesus told elsewhere, also shows us how destruction comes to those who don't fulfill that purpose. What I just said is not popular theology, but it's sound theology. You see, popular theology says, um, popular theology says, if you don't follow Christ, or if you, if you are not transformed by him, though they would not put, many would not put it in those terms, that when you die, you, you just, your life ends. Or popular theology says if you're a good person or if you do a lot of good things or even if you attend church and do all of these good things, if you avoid the bad things, then when we die, if they do believe, even though it may be a skewed belief, that there is a heaven of sorts, though it may not be a biblical heaven as we see in Scripture. They, they think there's something. Popular theology says, well, I'll just do the best that I can, and then I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll live forever in, in a good place, or uh, everything will be fine, and I'll be with my friends and loved ones who've gone before me. That's popular theology. And yet, yet Jesus is commuting, communicating here that if we fail to make him the very center of our lives, then destruction awaits us. It's not popular because that's because referring to hell. It's referring that, that there, is a, there is an eternity, but there are only two options. It's either, it's either following him because we surrendered our lives to him while we were living, or if we refuse to do that, if we try to live for ourselves or something else, then at the end, there's destruction. 
See, a lot of people don't like this story because of what it implies. They don't like this story because they don't like to think of Jesus cursing anything, bringing judgment on anything, seeing something destroyed. They don't, they don't like that, and yet it is extremely biblical, not only here, but many, many other places. I want you to understand this morning that every one of us here this morning, but even more importantly, every person who has ever lived will one day stand before him and we will give an account for our lives. And basically, essentially, the question is, am I the Lord of your life? or where I? And if he is not the very center of our life, if, if our reason for being is not Christ, then destruction is going to be the end result. That's hard theology sound theology, but it's not biblical, excuse me, it's not popular theology. So this is one of the reasons why Jesus did it then. He wanted the disciples to understand, and he wanted us to understand that there is the result of a failure to understand our purpose. But there's more. You see, Jesus wasn't done. There's another reason why he did what he did, and that was, the second thing is, it was to show us the power of faith in him. You see, the, the text continues. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says, Jesus answered them, this is all in the same dialogue, have faith in God, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And, you're, and you, some of you are like, I didn't know that those statements were within the context of them standing next to this dead tree. And Jesus Again, what is, what is he communicating? What, what was the reason that he took the time to curse the tree and it withered and died? It's to show us the power of faith in him. This tells us, his statement here, this, this, this very clear object lesson that he just did, and his statements tell us that there is power from him that is available to us. Let me say that again. There is power from him that is available to us. Just hours before, 24 hours before, Jesus had spoken and a fig tree in the hours following that withered. But here he said that there were things that were bigger than fruitless fig trees. Again, the the context, Bethany, where they're traveling from, is to the east of Jerusalem. They're making their way into Jerusalem, heading west into Jerusalem, and uh, in between there is this place, you've probably heard about it, called the Mount of Olives. Several years ago, my wife and I stood, and it's a sizable mountain, and if you think about it, really there's nothing that I can think of bigger that we can see than a mountain. So why does he, bring, why does he mix metaphors here? Why does he not refer to, you know, there's going to be trees in your future? Why? Because he's, 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 they're, they're looking up in the tree, but Jesus is looking beyond that, and he says, yeah, but there's going to be mountains ahead. 
There's going, to be, there's going to be things bigger than fruitless fig trees. There's going to be some mountains ahead. And Jesus said again, but, but, but even if you, whoever says to this mountain, and he refers to the mountains that are actually around there, maybe not just the Mount of Olives, but maybe some of the other mountains in that range there. He, he says, even if you say to a mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he, will, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, here's the thing. This text, boy, this has been misused in a lot of ways. And, and I remember a time in my life when, when there was a really popular theology that just said, you just declare it, whatever it is, whatever you desire, you just, you just speak it forth and it will happen because this is what it says. This is all under the understanding that you are in submission to him. <coughs> that he is the Lord of your life. But, but what it is telling us is that if God puts something on your heart and it's a part of his plan, then, then you can speak it forth and it will be done. We need to stand upon that truth. Jesus was telling his disciples, he was telling his followers, there's gonna be some mountains ahead for you. Oh, and there were. There were. There were some mountains ahead of them that would have to be moved through prayer and through faith in him. Several weeks later, uh, two of these disciples, Peter and John, were walking through in Jerusalem. They're walking through, and they see this guy who has been, who's crippled. He's always been crippled, and he's asking for money, and, 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 and they say to him, you know, what, what you want, we don't have. We don't have silver and gold, but here's what we do have. In the, and they didn't ask him. They told him, in the name of Jesus... Stand up and walk. And they reached down and they pulled him up and the man who had never walked before suddenly walked around. That was the fulfillment of this. They spoke it. It was a part of God's plan and they spoke it and it happened. Now, that was a mountain. You talk about unable to walk, that's a pretty big mountain. Jesus knew that there were going to be other mountains ahead, and he wanted to in the hours and the days that he still had with them. He wanted to tell them, there's going to be some mountains in your future that need to be moved. And the same power of God that was demonstrated when I spoke to this fruitless fig tree can also be spoken to the mountains that you're going to have ahead of you, and they too will be moved. Now let me speak to, to all of us, because this is a long time ago, but this is for us. There are some of you here this morning that have some pretty big mountains. There are some pretty big mountains that some of you have and that some of you are facing, There are some mountains that, that, that just seem absolutely immovable and, and, and you've tried going around them and you can't go. There are some of you that have a mountain and I tell you this, if you are following Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit speaks to you and stirs you and you say, it can't be done, you speak to that mountain and by God's power, not yours, but by God's power and your faith in him through prayer, that mountain can and will be removed. You go, come on. Well, you know, I... I know that this can be literally true. Certainly, I believe that. If God spoke to, uh, to move this mountain, that he can, but you know, I, I don't remember the last time I needed an actual mountain moved. But there have been some things in my life that were mountains. And I said, Lord, I can't move this, but I need you to move it. And he's moved those mountains. Some of you have some mountains, and they need to be moved. Have faith in him. Jesus said, have faith in God. Well, but Jesus still wasn't done. You're going, man, I didn't know there was so much here. I was thinking it was just a fig tree. No, there's more here. 
Jesus still wasn't done because in verse 25, he said this, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus here, again, imagine this, they're standing next to this fig tree that was withered in the last 24 hours. And he's saying to them, when you go to prayer, because in the verses previous, you know, there's a mountain, you pray. He says, and when you go to prayer, he didn't say if, he said when you go to prayer. If there is anything we have against anyone. Does that read that way in your Bible? If you have anything against anyone. Anything against anyone. Would you say, would you read that with me? Anything against anyone. One more time, speak it out. Anything against anyone. You know what that means? That means if you have anything against anyone. Did you get that right? It says anything anyone. That's exclusive. Jesus said if, if, if there is anything we have against anyone, well, only for believers. No, it says anyone. We are to forgive them. Forgive them does not mean forget. Does, it does not mean that we just, you know, oh, I, I feel wonderful about this person and I just want to spend the rest of my life with them. No. Forgiveness simply means I want to take my revenge, but I'm not going to. I'm going to release this to the Lord. They're the Lord's, and I'm going to let him deal with them, but I'm not. And I release it to him. Jesus said, when you pray, when you stand and pray, forgive. (laughs) Somebody told me once, well, then I'll sit and pray, and I'll just hold. No, no, it's, it's prayer. If we have anything against anyone. We are to forgive them so that our Father in heaven can forgive us. That's that's serious stuff. This shows us that God's grace is connected to God's power. Let me say that again. God's grace is connected to God's power. You want to see God's power? Operate in God's grace. Now that. That's pretty good. If you want to operate in God's power, you must operate in God's grace. And if you don't operate in God's grace, you're not going to operate, you're not going to see God's power. How many people, I wonder, only God knows, how many people, how many people do not experience the power of God because they're not operating in the grace that God gives them? And they keep crying out, oh Lord, we need this. But they're not experiencing God's power because they're not operating in God's grace. It's connected. It's connected. I can't tell you the number of people. I can't tell you the number of people that I've known over the years who instead of forgiving each other, they get upset at each other, they get upset at someone else in the church, they get upset at some brother or sister, And instead of experiencing and operating in God's grace, they simply go someplace else. 
and they continue to hold it. And they wonder why I pray and nothing happens, because they're still unforgiven. Doesn't it say here? Well, well, it's, it's there. If you have anything against anyone, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Because they're still, they're still in sin. They, they have, because they've not extended God's grace, because they've not forgiven someone, they themselves are not forgiven. They're still in a sinful state. They may not be doing some of the things that they did, but they're not forgiven. Why? Because they didn't forgive. Listen. You and I, all of us, every one of us here this morning, we will all have countless opportunities to become offended. Let me say that again. Every one of us will have countless opportunities to be offended, to become angry at someone for something, to be angry at someone for something. They say or they do, but I warn you, I warn you, listen to this warning. I warn you, if you choose to withhold forgiveness from anyone for anything, you will not be forgiven. You got a problem with that, take it up with Jesus, because I didn't say it, he did. And that, that is an eternally insecure place. I'm a good, I gave my heart to Jesus in 1972. Glory to God. But if you don't forgive someone, then you are in an eternally insecure place and you are in danger of going to hell because your sins are unforgiven. Yeah but, you, yeah, but you don't know what that person did. I don't. But you don't know how many times they did it. I don't. Anything, anyone... God's grace is connected to God's power. Let me add this. If you withhold forgiveness, some of the spiritual mountains in your life that you're praying to be removed will remain in place. Some of the spiritual mountains that you're praying to God to be removed from your life will remain in place if you don't forgive. Hmm. There's a lot there. Some pretty powerful stuff. Jesus had a great plan that day on the road between Bethany and Jerusalem. We've come to a very important part of our service, and that is for an opportunity for you to respond. I'm going to ask the worship team if they will prepare themselves, but please do not be distracted by them coming. I want you to continue to focus in on this message, this word. It's very important. In a few moments, we're going to sing a song that we sang earlier. And that is, God is able. I want you to understand that God 
is able. He is able to give you true purpose. To fulfill the purpose to which he's called you. Our God is able to deliver you from the stupid purpose for which you've been living. Our God is able. Our God is able to to move mountains in our lives through faith in him. And our God, some of you are are struggling right now because you're thinking, "I, I don't have it in me to forgive that person for that thing. I hear what you're saying, preacher. I hear what you're saying that we're to forgive anyone for anything. But I can't. I don't have it in me. And you are absolutely right. You don't have it in you. You don't have it in you to forgive that person. I don't have it in me. But I serve the one who gives us amazing grace to forgive anyone for anything. See, our God is able. Standing next to a dead tree on a road between Bethany and Jerusalem, Jesus that day taught his people the power of true purpose. It's all about him. It's all about purpose. It's all about him. Standing next to a dead tree on the road between Bethany and Jerusalem, Jesus taught his people that day the power of faith and prayer to move mountains. Stand with me this morning, everyone. Standing next to a dead tree on that road between Bethany and Jerusalem, Jesus taught his people that day the power of grace and forgiveness. In just a few seconds, I'm going to close this time in prayer. That prayer means two things. Number one, this service is done, at least my part in it. And you're free to go. It's fine. But it means another thing. It's an opportunity for you to come and to respond at an altar of prayer. Some part of this message may have hit you particularly. Some parts of it maybe not so much. But I know that God put it on my heart to preach this message, to bring it to you this morning. And in a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to close. This worship team, thank you, worship team. You are going, they are going to lead us. You can continue to praise the Lord. If you need to go, you can go. Some of you need to go right away. I understand that. But there's others that need to just gather around these altars, turn where you are, go someplace. If you want to get on your face, if you want to lift up your hands, drop to your knees, I don't care. If you want to get all excited, if you want to weep, if you want to cry before God and say, Lord, I need a mountain move, well, then you come to these altars. You say, I don't know what my purpose is, but I, I, I believe you. I believe that what this word says, and I've been living for the wrong purpose. Well, then you come and you drop to your knees and you spend some time with Jesus. Some of you are saying, well, I, I can't forgive that person for what they did. Anyone, anything, Jesus is able. You want to experience God's grace and God's power like you've ever, never experienced before, then you come and you experience God's grace and he's going to give you the grace to forgive. Our God is able. Amen? Our God is able. Now, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these people who have come out this morning on a cold morning because they have a, have a heart that is hot for you, that is, that is on fire for you. 
Thank you, Jesus. I, I thank you for that the temperature in this room has nothing to do with the temperature on the wall and the thermostat. It has everything to do with a heart of passion for you. And I pray, Jesus, that at these altars of prayer in the next moments, I pray that you would transform, that you would call, that you would deliver, that you would set people free, and that you would move mountains in people's lives. We pray these things, Lord, and your blessing upon us as we go throughout this day, as we shine the light in the darkness of our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning. Let's sing this together. Our God is able. He will never fail. He is 